From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we take the hour to speak with Michelle Alexander, activist, attorney, and author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. We explore what three decades of the war on drugs has meant for the African-American community in the United States, and we talk about the theological implications of our criminal justice system. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michelle Alexander. Her first book was The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Since its publication in 2010, the book has become a focal point for a national conversation on the intersection of the criminal justice system, systemic violence, and racial politics in the 21st century. In the wake of the outrage that erupted following the deaths of African-American men at the hands of police in Ferguson, Missouri, New York City, and in other areas around the country over the past year, the new Jim Crow has shown its continued relevance. Michelle Alexander is a highly acclaimed civil rights lawyer, advocate, and legal scholar. She's taught at the Stanford Law School, the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity, and at the Moritz College of Law at The Ohio State University. She helped spearhead the national efforts of the American Civil Liberties Union against racial profiling. She now devotes a good deal of her time to writing and public speaking, in addition to her efforts to advocate for an end to mass incarceration. Michelle Alexander, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So as a way of starting off our conversation, I wonder if you could read a a short passage from your book, The New Jim Crow. Sure. Dealing with the system on its own terms is complicated by the problem of denial. Few Americans today recognize mass incarceration for what it is, a new caste system thinly veiled by the cloak of colorblindness. Hundreds of thousands of people of color are swept into the system and released every year, yet we rationalize the systemic discrimination and exclusion and turn a blind eye to the suffering. Our collective denial is not merely an inconvenient fact. It is a major stumbling block the public understanding of the role of race in our society, and it sharply limits the opportunities for truly transformative collective action. And that's our guest, Michelle Alexander, reading from her book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. So as a way of starting off the conversation, since we're going to be discussing the concept of the new Jim Crow, perhaps you could take a moment and just tell our listeners uh, briefly what the old Jim Crow was. Yeah, I think it is important to define what we mean by the old Jim Crow. In fact, not long after the book was published, I did a few interviews um, where there were live audiences and callers would call in and say, what is Jim Crow? And came to realize that, you know, a large segment um, of our population, and this included black folks, white folks, folks of all colors, really had not been well-educated about our racial history, and even the term Jim Crow was unfamiliar to many. Um, You know, Jim Crow refers to a period of of time as well as 
a set of rules, laws, policies, and practices that operated to lock a group of people defined by race, African Americans, into a permanent second-class status uh, in the United States. Um, you know, following the Civil War, uh, slavery was officially ended, but a new system of racial and social control was eventually born, um, a system of legalized race discrimination, which was enforced most stringently in the South, but, you know, certainly could be found in varying forms in the North as well. And in the South, the system was one of legal uh, racial segregation, not only in schools and on buses where black folks were forced to sit on the back of the bus, but it was a system of poll taxes and literacy tests that operated to keep black folks from the polls, um, denying them the right to vote. Um, it was a system that allowed legal discrimination in employment, housing, um, access to education, and public benefits. It was a system that operated to keep black folks off juries. Um, and so all-white juries were the rule rather than the exception. So when we refer to Jim Crow, we're referring to a period of our history as well as um, a set of rules, laws, policies, and practices that um, for many years operated to keep black folks trapped in a permanent second-class status. And that idea of permanent second-class status is is taken up at several points in the book when you refer to uh, Jim Crow as a type of caste system. And I just want to make sure that our, our listeners are on board with us. So when we use this term caste system, what does that refer to? Yeah, well, I titled my book The New Jim Crow because I wanted people to understand that, you know, today in the so-called era of colorblindness and even in the age of Obama, Something like the old Jim Crow has been born again. Once again in our country, we have created a massive system of racial and social control um, known as mass incarceration. It operates through a penal system that's unprecedented in world history, both the size and scope of it, um, as well as punitiveness. But it is a system that operates practically from cradle to grave, targeting young people in impoverished, ghettoized communities of color, you know, targeting them at young ages, often before they're old enough to vote, stopping, searching, frisking, interrogating them, um, no matter, you know, where they're going or what they're doing, if they're just headed home from school to the bus stop, um, if they're just walking home with nothing but skittles in their pocket, stop, frisk, search, question. Eventually, they may be caught for something, as young people tend to make mistakes in their lives, they're caught for something, and once they're caught, they're swept into a parallel social universe. Uh, once they're swept into the criminal justice system, they are forever trapped. They find that the very civil and human rights supposedly won, and the civil rights movement no longer apply to them. Um, they can be stripped of the right to vote. Um, automatically excluded from juries and legally discriminated against in employment, housing, access to education, and basic public benefits. So many of the old forms of discrimination um, that we supposedly left behind during the Jim Crow era are suddenly legal again once you've been branded a criminal or a felon. I think we have in our culture, you know, an awareness 
that there are classes in this country, you know, an upper class, middle class, lower class, and maybe even an underclass. But I think for the most part, we want to believe that with sufficient effort or motivation that anybody can move from a lower class to a higher one. But what I came to understand, really what I became awakened to, is that we don't simply have a class system in the United States. There are people who are trapped in a lower caste by law. And we like to think that this uh, lower caste of people are there because of their own choosing, because they broke the law, some kind of law. But what we are reluctant to admit is that so many of them who are trapped for life made precisely the same kinds of mistakes that the rest of us make (laughs) and go off to college, go on with our lives. And yet for poor people of color in particular, who have been the primary targets of the system, those little useful mistakes mean a lifetime of closed doors, scorn, and exclusion. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration and the Age of Colorblindness. We're discussing Alexander's work to understand and critique the criminal justice system in the United States and its long-term impact on the African-American community. Well, a moment ago, you were discussing the two-track system that we've created in our country and this this wide net that has been cast that catches youth when they make mistakes and and puts them into a, a permanent undercast status where they are stripped of rights, where they are where they're stripped of 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 their of their franchise in society. And one of the things that comes out of that is you would think that that as as consciousness is raised about this, there'd be a great hue and a cry. But in the excerpt that you read at the top of the show, you speak about the effects of what you call a collective denial. And I'm very interested, you know, this is a massive uh, effect that you're talking about, and yet it hasn't really been discussed and explored. So I'm wondering, how do you see this collective denial operate on a mass scale? Well, I think it operates in a number of ways. You know, I think most obviously prisons and ghettos are, for the most part, out of sight and out of mind for mainstream, particularly white Americans. Back during the old Jim Crow, there was no denying the existence of a racial caste system. There were whites-only signs hanging on the walls. Um, There was just no denying the existence of the caste system, whether you agreed with it or not. Everyone knew that a caste system was in place and that there was a system of legal um, discrimination operating. Well, today, all the whites-only signs are gone, and there is the appearance of great racial progress and the fact of real racial progress in, you know, many areas um, of our society. It is no small thing that we have a black president of the United States. There has been real progress, but The progress that has been made, I think, makes it easy for us to be blind and denial um, about the emergence of a new caste-like system. You know, if you aren't directly affected by the system of mass incarceration, if you yourself have not been branded a felon and forced to check the box on employment applications and 
um, housing, you know, rental um, agreements, public housing applications, welfare forms, loan agreements, applying for financial aid, for schooling. If you yourself have not been branded a felon and forced to check the box and been subject to legal discrimination and having doors closed in your face, uh, if you yourself can't vote um, because of, you know, some mistake you made when you were 19, if this system doesn't directly affect you, if you haven't spent time in a cage yourself and then been trapped as part of a permanent second-class status, it's easy to go your whole life imagining that all is relatively well. You go to the mall and you see black and white folks shopping together, <laughs> eating together, and, you know, colorblind America looks good on the surface and from a distance. But for those who know what it means to be black and labeled a felon, the pain of living your life with that label. Studies show that white men with a criminal record are more likely to be hired than a black man without a criminal record with identical identical credentials and qualifications. So, you know, even without a criminal record, African-American men face extraordinary levels of, of discrimination. But an African-American man with a criminal record is the most difficult uh, group of Americans to find employment. They face the most extraordinary barriers to employment, to housing, to, to near you know, survival. And yet if this doesn't affect you directly, it's easy to be in denial about what's, what's going on. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. We'll be back in a moment. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Michelle Alexander. She's the author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Both in your book and in this conversation, you've raised at several points this phrase, uh, the colorblind society. And in your book, you're critical of what you call colorblind advocacy. You said that you hope that colorblindness is not the ultimate goal because blindness implies indifference to the, the, the complexity of our democracy and the individuals within our democracy. One of the trends I've seen in media and commentary lately, and probably it's been going on for years, but it's really come to a head, 
it seemed to me that that there are those who take the position in the media that the problem that we're really dealing with is not racism, but rather that we're still talking about racism. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you can help me understand how we reached the point where in the media talking about the problem, at least to certain pundits, was viewed as worse than the problem itself. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, there have actually been many studies now that, you know, have demonstrated that particularly for white Americans, there are a few things they like to do less than talk about race. <laughs> um, and the reality is that race has always been a difficult, uncomfortable, and frequently painful subject in America. Um, the reluctance of many to talk about race isn't new. <laughs> this has been a challenge for racial justice advocates since slavery. You know, the temptation to want to just look the other way and say, well, let's just not talk about it and it'll all be fine or things aren't as bad as they seem. Why do we have to constantly be bothered with the race problem? And obviously, I think most people of all colors would want to be in a, in a country, in a society in which racial division and our painful racial history was not something that w was necessary to talk about. Um, it's difficult and it can be unpleasant, but it's necessary. And I think one of the things that makes talking about race so difficult is that we are still locked in really an old Jim Crow mindset. When someone says, that's racist or you're racist, it makes people mad, angry, and defensive. Um, we get, you know, locked into a mode of, you know, accusation and denial rather than coming from a position of acknowledging that, you know, given our racial history and the ways in which um, all of us have been raised with, you know, racial identities, either conscious or unconscious, and given the high levels of racial segregation that persists, you know, in our society, um, it is inevitable that we are all going to have biases and stereotypes, and we need not be defensive about them. Instead, when someone says, I think that uh, you may be exercising your discretion as a police officer in a discriminatory manner, instead of the police officer saying, how dare you call me a racist? Instead, the officer could say, that may be true. Show me how. Show me how I could be exercising my discretion differently. How could I be approaching my job in a way that shows more care and concern for the communities I am serving? You know, I think it's important for us all to acknowledge our own racism, our own bias, just as we also must acknowledge our own criminality. You know, we have this idea that the criminals are them, not us, when all of us, of course, have broken the law at some point in our lives. So moving beyond an us-versus-them mentality and becoming less defensive about questions of, of race and racism, whether um, the discussion revolves around you know, personal bias or institutional bias, um, if we're much more open to the possibility that we have a lot more work to do, both individually and collectively, our nation as a whole, I think it'll become much easier to have these conversations. And, a much, uh, and it'll be much easier to move beyond um, the point where we're simply fighting with one another, making accusations and denials, and 
um, instead getting to a much more constructive place where we all, together, um, people of different colors, races, and backgrounds acknowledge that we all have a role to play in creating the kind of uh, multiracial, multiethnic democracy in which everyone is treated with dignity um, and respect and has meaningful um, opportunities for education, quality housing, and <laughs> basic human rights. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. We're discussing Alexander's work to understand and critique the criminal justice system in the United States and its long-term impact on the African-American community. So what I just heard in your answer was echoes of, of a couple of, of things. One is Eugene B. Debs saying, if there's a lower caste, I'm in it. If there's a criminal element, I'm of it. But I also hear echoes from the Gospels when, when Christ is saying, you know, when, he, when he's asked, when did we see you? And he says, when you, when you passed by the poor person, when you passed by the suffering person, the person who was sick, the person who was in prison, those were the places where I was. So I hear, yeah. I, I hear that in your answer. But I also hear in your answer this incredible hope that the police officer at the moment of, of opposition is going to have this self-reflexive moment when, when the police officer is going to be able to say, I will relinquish some of my power in this moment and listen to your experience. And I'm, I'm wondering, have we turned a corner? Is that even possible in today's society where that kind of power relinquishing could be conceived of or could even happen? Well, a couple of things. First, I think we have to acknowledge that individual police officers operate within police departments and within a law enforcement culture as a whole that has understood itself as being at war with particular communities, literally at war. You know, I spend much of my book documenting how the war on drugs has decimated, you know, poor communities of color, um, how poor communities of color have been targeted for these low-level, relatively minor, nonviolent drug offenses, even though people of color are no more likely to be guilty of drug crime than whites. But it hasn't just been a legal, you know, targeting of communities by the police. It's been a war. The war on drugs was not just a rhetorical war. It became a literal war. And, you know, many people were surprised, you know, when footage of, you know, the protests in Ferguson showed, you know, all of these police officers responding with military equipment and the riot gear and there were tanks in the streets. And, you know, people were unaware that, our local police forces um, have been militarized as part of this war on drugs as well as the war on crime and that the Pentagon and Department of Defense have been shipping military equipment to you know, police departments large and small so they can carry out a literal war against communities that have been defined in their own mind and in their strategic planning as black, primarily black and brown. And this war mindset, this us versus them war mindset, makes it extremely difficult 
for an individual police officer to engage in the kind of self-reflection that we just discussed. And so it isn't simply incumbent on individual officers to acknowledge their own bias and the ways in which they may be acting out stereotypes. And even if they had have good intentions of trying to serve the communities they're charged with policing, that their conscious and unconscious biases may be corrupting um, their decision-making process and their approach. It's not just incumbent on individual officers. It's incumbent upon all of us to insist that these wars that are being waged on poor communities, particularly communities of color, come to an end and that we demilitarize our police, we transform the culture of policing from um, you know, war-like mentality one where they understand themselves to be peace officers and are trained to be peace officers as opposed to warriors. So the responsibility lies with us as well to demand of our politicians, of our elected officials, that we transform the nature of policing itself um, and the wars on drugs and um, begin dismantling the entire system of mass incarceration that we've constructed over the past 30 or 40 years. So, you know, one of my concerns, you know, in much of the media discourse around the, you know, police shootings is that people tend to focus on what is wrong with that bad cop, that one individual. And, you know, certainly in, we have seen more than a few instances in recent months of police officers using unnecessary force, killing unarmed black men um, in situations that are horrifying. And yet so much of the focus is on what's wrong with them, the individual. And I think we ought to be asking ourselves, what's wrong with us as a nation that we have become so unrelenting in our punitiveness? What's wrong with us as a nation that we would allow a war to be declared on poor communities of color, millions rounded up for committing the same kinds of crimes that we, the rest of us, more middle class or upper middle class, the kinds of crimes that we also commit in our youth. What is wrong with us? And uh, I hope that that kind of conversation will begin to bloom um, so that we are no longer trapped in ongoing dialogue with, you know, how do we root out the bad cops? Um, and instead ask, how do we transform the nature of policing in the United States and turn away from a purely punitive mindset and reimagine what justice might look like if we valued all of our communities rather than some of them? This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. We're discussing Alexander's work to understand and critique the criminal justice system in the United States and its long-term impact on African-American communities. So a moment ago, you raised this question, what's wrong with us? And I want to take a step back and, and, and look at this in, in both sort of a global and historical context. So in, in apartheid South Africa, the theologian Alan Bosak wrote a, a just a, a striking critique of of the South African apartheid state 
as a theological enterprise. And he said that, that the, the theology of the church was tied up with the racism that was seen on the streets. And if we think about uh, the way that Abraham Lincoln spoke about the Civil War as in many ways being an atonement for the sin of racism and that the pain that was being felt in, in the war was, was, was perhaps equivalent to the pain of the several centuries of racism that had happened beforehand. And so with those as a background, I want to ask a potentially dangerous question. Is there a theology behind mass incarceration? Is there a theology behind our seeming addiction to racism in this country, in your view? Well, you know, it's interesting. I recently gave a speech at um, Union Theological Seminary in New York, in which I argued that the time was overdue for us to create a multiracial, multiethnic, interfaith theology of liberation for this era of mass incarceration, that, you know, it was urgent um, for people of faith and people of conscience to wake up to the reality of what has occurred in this supposedly colorblind America and to develop uh, a theology of liberation that's multiracial, multiethnic, and interfaith. And I am not a theologian, (laughs) and so... Um, I myself don't feel qualified to spell out precisely what that theology might look like, but I feel as though it's a collaborative enterprise and that all of us um, have a role to play in imagining and defining what it would look like for us as a nation um, to respond to the poorest among us, to the least advantaged to the despised, to the accused, with genuine care, compassion, and concern, recognizing that we're all God's children and that we all deserve a recognition of our our basic humanity. We all deserve basic human rights. And so I have not thought as much about what the theology is that sustains this unrelenting punitive mindset um, that exists in America. As I mentioned in my speech at Union, there's a story, you know, in the Bible about a woman who's accused of adultery or committed adultery, and everyone stands around, uh, a group of men stand around her, preparing to stone her to death for her crime. And, you know, the story in the Bible says, you know, Jesus says, you know, to those gathered, prepared to stone the woman to death, he who was without sin cast the first stone. And then as each of the men consider their own sins, they begin to drop their stones one by one and walk away. Well, it seems that we as a nation um, have come to love to throw stones, and we have, have developed a culture of punitiveness. Um, that really is unlike anything the world has ever seen. Um, in his book, Race to Incarcerate, Mark Maurer cites a study showing that the most punitive nations in the world are the most diverse, the most compassionate, the most you know, lenient nations are the most homogeneous. And, you know, one can 
I wonder whether it's an aspect of human nature, an aspect of our human nature, um, to feel more punitive to those we view as the others. But certainly, if America is ever going to be able um, to say with truth that diversity is our strength, (laughs) then as we as a nation become ever more diverse, and as we struggle to overcome the history of slavery as well as genocide (laughs) upon which this nation was born, and find paths to healing and justice and restoration, we are going to have to really summon the courage um, to care for one another and to respond to one another um, with compassion rather than punitiveness, even though there may be an aspect of our human nature that finds it oh so very tempting to push away, to judge, and to respond with punitiveness to those who we view as the others. Um, In many ways, I feel like that's part of the great challenge of America, this project, this grand experiment, is can we, together as different races, different cultures, different faiths, different classes, walks of life, can we come together you know, as a democracy and demonstrate through our policies, our practices and our institutions and our community building that we actually care for one another as a whole people united. That's that's the question, and it remains unanswered. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in an Age of Colorblindness. Alexander will be one of the keynote speakers at the Chicago Theological Seminary Conference commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights March in Selma, Alabama, a conference called Selma at 50, Still Marching. You can find out more about that conference and how to participate at selma.ctschicago.edu. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. If you're on Twitter please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. We're discussing Alexander's work to understand and critique the criminal justice system in the United States and its long-term impact on African-American communities. Well, let me shift from the abstract and theological and and push more towards the concrete. 
So when we talk about faith communities here in America, what have faith communities been doing wrong in the face of the issues that you've raised regarding the criminal justice system? How have faith communities failed to meet the challenge of systemic racism and systemic violence? Well, I think, you know, there are, there are a number of, of things that I wish that I had seen the faith communities do over the last few decades that, by and large, they haven't. I think one of our great failures has been our silence. And Dr. King famously, you know, said, you know, um, I'll probably get the quote wrong, but the gist of it was, you know, silence in the face of injustice is complicity. And so many faith communities have been silent, largely silent, as a penal system, unlike anything the world has ever seen, has been born in this country, one that has targeted affected primarily the poorest. Um, and most vulnerable in our societies. And so what possibly explains silence? And I think, unfortunately, so many faith communities find it easier to blame (laughs) and to shame than to do what often their scriptures and their most holy teachings urge them to do, um, which is to open their hearts with forgiveness and compassion and create opportunities for meaningful redemption. Our criminal justice system today is predicated on denying um, to millions of people very forms of compassion, forgiveness, opportunities um, for redemption that so many people of faith claim to cherish. Um, so I think our silence in the face of all of this has the biggest mistake Um, But I think also questioning, failing to question, ask questions, deeper questions um, about the reasons why so many um, of our poorest members of our society and poor folks of color in particular have been cycling in and out of prisons and jails. There has been a temptation to imagine that the explosion in our prison population can be explained simply by moral failings within um, you know, the communities most affected, um, rather than taking a look at the larger institutional and social forces that have shaped the experiences and outcomes of um, so many. And, um, you know, I can speak from my own <laughs> experience um, in, you know, various faith communities. There's often, you know, um, a willingness to talk about saving individual souls, you know, certainly in the Christian church, um, but much less openness uh, to talking about transforming the society in which these souls must live. Um, And so you'll see, you know, very often, um, you know, Christians going into prisons to pray with people behind bars or providing soup and food for homeless people, um, many of whom are homeless because they could not find housing or work, and offering charity. But I think we have not seen as much as we could have or um, should have um, people of faith um, coming together to do the hard work of transforming Um, our institutions and asking the hard questions and challenging 
individuals and the politicians um, and the systems that have trapped so many into a permanent second-class status. Well, a moment ago, you you laid down a challenge to faith communities in, in the United States to really get about the concrete business of transforming society and transforming institutions. And in your book, The New Jim Crow, you write that to the extent that change in society happens without a complete shift, the system has this mechanism of rebounding. And so given that that the desire is is a transformation and that transformation involves many institutions, including uh, communities of faith, what would such a complete shift look like in our culture? And maybe not just in terms of our culture, but in terms of our politics and our economics. Well, first I want to say, you know, kind of after um, spelling out the ways in which I think faith communities have been silent or absent or neglectful over the past few decades, that there are many faith communities now that are taking bold action, and there are many, many people of faith and uh, networks who are, are coming together and waking up and getting engaged and involved. And so I want to, you know, acknowledge that. I mean, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, which is based in Chicago, um, one of the first networks um, of um, faith organizations to really you know, take mass incarceration on as their primary focus. It's a network of several thousand, um, you know, progressive black churches. There have been, you know, there's PICO, which has transformed its campaign um, against, you know, inner city violence to be a campaign that is aiming at ending not only violence in poor communities of color, but also ending the system of mass incarceration that in many ways aids and abets um, the desperation and violence um, that exists in many communities of color. Um, There's a wide range of faith groups and communities that have been engaged um, in these issues in recent years, and it's one of the reasons why I feel so encouraged. And so I want to acknowledge that it's it's not all bad news (laughs) when it comes to the role of communities um, of faith. And um, that I'm hopeful today in large part because so many people of faith and people of conscience are waking up and taking bold and courageous action. And for those who are part of faith communities, I encourage them to check out some of the resources that are now being made available um, to support faith groups who want to take action to end mass incarceration. The Veterans of Hope Project created a study guide based on my book, Jim Crow, uh, what Proctor Conference has, the Unitarians have. There's a Jewish study guide and um, resources available for you know folks who want to get involved in organizing and advocacy and reflecting on these questions. And so, there is a lot of important work that is being done now and emerging. But in terms of you know what it would look like um, to have the kind of transformation um, that, you know, I, I hope for and I, many others hope for and have been working for, I think ultimately what we need is a new moral consensus in this country. Um, it's not simply a matter of 
ending laws and policies, although certainly working to end those laws and policies, working to end the war on drugs, ending harsh mandatory minimum sentences, decriminalizing, you know, simple possession of drugs, and, you know, shifting to a public health model for dealing with drug addiction and drug abuse, um, you know, ending all forms of legal discrimination against people who've been labeled criminals and felons so they have, you know, an opportunity for education and employment and housing and all the rest. All of those policy changes are critically important, and I think in many ways courageous, bold advocacy to change the policies is, you know, a critical ingredient to shifting public consciousness and helping to build the new moral consensus. But, you know, ultimately, I believe the new moral consensus must be one that recognizes the dignity and humanity of everyone, no matter who you are, where you came from, country you may have come from or been born in, or what you may have done. Um, recognizing the dignity and humanity of every single one of us, no matter what color, what ethnicity, what religion, no matter what, no matter even what you have done, that you are still a human being worthy of care, compassion, concern, basic respect, human rights. You know, I, I have noticed that in this country we have not yet really developed kind of a, a language, a dialogue around human rights. Um, we talk about civil rights, but we rarely talk about human rights. And I think... You know, as we work to end mass incarceration, it's absolutely essential that we come to embrace a new moral consensus that supports basic human rights for all of us, no matter who we are or what we have done. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Michelle Alexander. She's the author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Well, after your many years of working on these issues, what continues to frustrate you? Well, you know, honestly, it's easier for me to think of examples of things that inspire me than frustrate me. But I'll, I'll, I'll say probably what frustrates me most um, is the denial and indifference that we spoke about a little bit earlier. And I think that one of the greatest gifts that the activists in Ferguson gave to us as a nation was by creating an environment in which we couldn't look away. We couldn't keep shrugging our shoulders. It was forcing the nation to pay attention, creating an environment in which we actually had to face these issues and talk about them. And I think, you know, forms of advocacy, civil disobedience and direct actions that create crises that force our nation to have difficult conversations and to pay attention is so necessary. I know that there's a temptation very often among civil rights advocates to try to find kind of the easiest route to achieving the goal. Is there some way where we can talk with the mayor behind closed doors or lobby a legislator in order to achieve a goal when, in fact, um, we should, in many cases, be seeking out, you know, opportunities for constructive confrontation, forcing the kind of public debate and dialogue that we've had in the months since Ferguson, that if we fail to do that, um, it will be too easy 
um, for us to kind of just continue on with business as usual. Well, you mentioned a moment ago that, that you'd rather talk about the inspiration, so I wonder if briefly you could tell us what continues to give you hope in the face of this long struggle. You know, I have to say what absolutely gives me the most hope is the people who I have met who have been through the system and who somehow not only managed to survive it, not only managed to find a way, despite that felony record hanging around their neck, to, you know, find work or housing or support their children, which is so extraordinarily difficult to do once you've got that brand on you, you're a felon, you're a criminal. These folks who not only manage to survive, but who are working tirelessly to ensure that no one else will have to suffer through what they went through. Um, you know, I think about people like Susan Burton, who I actually talk about a lot. She's become a dear friend of mine. Um, Susan Burton cycled in and out of prison for 15 years due to a drug addiction. Um, she became addicted to crack cocaine after an off-duty police officer ran over her five-year-old boy in the street in Los Angeles. And, you know, if Susan had been wealthy or even middle or upper middle class and had a good health care plan, um, she, you know, would have been in able to secure, you know, many, many hours of grief counseling and therapy. She would have been prescribed legal prescription drugs <laughs> um, to cope with her depression and grief. But instead, um, Susan, faced with the sudden death of her five-year-old boy, falls into a deep depression and winds up self-medicating with street drugs and becomes addicted to crack cocaine. And rather than being offered drug treatment, she... Uh, is offered nothing but a prison cell and cycles in and out of prison for 15 years. Every time she's released, she's just thrown off out onto the street um, with a felony, um, unable to find work or housing, even get food stamps to survive. She does this for 15 years, and then finally, by the grace of God, she is given access to a private drug treatment facility and given a job. And once she becomes clean, she decides that she's going to dedicate the rest of her life to ensuring that no other woman would ever have to go through what she went through. And she began just by going down to Skid Row, where the prison bus would turn women out onto the street who were released from prison with nothing but a cardboard box in their arms, um, carrying their belongings. And she would meet these women as they're coming up the prison bus, uh, on the Skid Row, and she would say, you don't have to turn to the streets tonight. You can come home. Just sleep on my couch. Sleep on my floor. You don't have to turn to the streets. I'll feed you. I'll, I'll, I'll help you reunite with your children or try to help you find a job. And she began that way, just taking women who were total strangers to her into her home. She now runs five safe homes for women uh, who are formerly incarcerated, Five Safe Homes. It's a program called A New Way of Life in Los Angeles. It's phenomenal uh, what she's been able to do. And not only is she helping to provide reentry support and a safe place for women who are released from prison to land, and training, job training, and help finding work and shelter and reunifying with her children, but she's also helping to lead formerly incarcerated women and men in a movement for the restoration of their basic civil and human rights and training these folks to be, you know, brilliant, courageous advocates. And, you know, I meet people like Susan, and I'm so inspired and filled with hope. I meet 
people like Susan all the time in my travels from coast to coast, people who not only are overcoming just unbelievable odds to survive, but who are turning around and doing what they can um, to help dismantle the system and, you know, create an underground railroad for people who are really trying to make a genuine freedom. Well, Michelle Alexander, there is so much more I want to, to speak to you about, and I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. Michelle Alexander is a highly acclaimed civil rights lawyer, advocate, and legal scholar. She's taught at the Stanford Law School, the Kieran Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity, and at the Moritz College of Law at the Ohio State University. She helped spearhead the national efforts of the American Civil Liberties Union against racial profiling. She now devotes a good deal of her time to writing and public speaking, in addition to her efforts to advocate for an end to mass incarceration. Her first book was The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in an Age of Colorblindness, published in 2010. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Adam Yaffe engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.